0: Be seated, James. Uh, if you could put a word cloud up, it would be great. Uh, we're going to be opening the Word of God and we'll be turning to a familiar text in Romans chapter 12. Before I go there, I always want to remind folks why uh, I want to remind you that you are sitting at New Covenant. Uh, New Covenant Church is seen by these characteristics in that, uh, in that word cloud. Uh, and if, I hope you can see even without glasses that we are not ashamed of the Bible. The Bible is center. Uh, We are a Bible-believing church, and that's why uh, I carry mine around. I've got a Bible open here. Uh, When you walk into the sanctuary, the thing that your attention is drawn to, the open Word of God. Uh, And so we're not ashamed of that because the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, You may be going through something. You may be confused about something. When God's Word shines its light into your soul, it is, as uh, Psalm 119 says, it's like a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And if you hide god's word in your heart do you know the rest of that verse you might not sin sin against him because then when you know the right way then you don't have to go the wrong way it's kind of like if you got directions why don't you follow them uh it's kind of that simple instead of just saying well i'd like to go this way or that looks like an easy road Uh, my son the other day was reminding me about the the old story the pilgrim's progress and uh, about how that uh, you can find yourself on the journey and sometimes the shortcut looks the nicest and sometimes Vanity Fair looks like a great place to visit. Uh, but certainly you don't want to be in Dowding Castle too long. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's an old, old book. Uh, a lot of people were brought up in the English-speaking world uh, listening to the stories about the pilgrim's progress. From the city of Man's Soul to where he finally gets to the celestial city to be able to spend eternity with God. We're here at New Covenant Church. I'm helping you along that way. I'm just like a pastor that's shepherding you down the path of righteousness for his name's sake, as Psalm 23 talks about. But if you see within the Bible-believing church, another big emphasis is the gospel. And that just simply means good news. We've always got good news for you. Regardless of whether the economy is tanking, regardless of whether gas costs more than $5 a gallon, it doesn't quite yet, I don't think. Um, regardless of, of, of a negative diagnosis from a doctor, when, no matter what goes on, the good news always comes from this pulpit that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever is resting in what Jesus did will not perish but have everlasting life. You know, and that's why we have the cross is empty. We may have the little thorns of crown up there to remind you of the suffering that Jesus did on our behalf. But we serve a risen Savior in the world. And because uh, we believe in, the, in what the Bible says and the gospel has good news, you can see all the other peripheral things. We're multi-generational and missional and friendly, caring, blended, all that stuff. It's because God is at work in us, changing us. We want children and adults to be able to come and meet with God and worship. Uh, And I'm telling you, that's what we're going to do today. So if you'll open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verse 9. I want to to, to ask you if you would um, pay attention publicly to the word, the inerrant, inspired, infallible word as it was given in the originals. Uh, We're going to be looking at the translation. I'm using the ESV here. But this is God's word. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. That's our text today. We're going to be elaborating on this a few more times because this is a core text. And um, I've studied the Bible a lot. I've read through the book of Romans many times. And I didn't see how significant this is. The application in chapter 12 here. Let me read it to you again. Let your love be genuine. Some translations say, let your love be sincere. And then he goes on with two, uh, two phrases that, come, that follow off of this idea about your love. And it is, so you're supposed to abhor something and you're supposed to hang on to the other thing. So if you, if you look, look closely, because you have genuine love, you ought to abhor what is evil or hate what is evil. And you should cling to that which is good. That's our text today. There's a sense in which sometimes this sounds like a moralistic, therapeutic sermon that could say, well, this is right and this is wrong. Just do right and everything will be fine. I'm going to tell you that that's not the way it works. And the reason I can tell you that is because the first, uh, uh, the key word here, agape, in the Greek is let your love. This idea of love. Love. As I tackle it, it is something that is sometimes hard to understand and explain. If I took you through the New Testament, especially through Paul's writings, do you know that Paul uses the term love 115 times? Do you think that that was significant? You bet it is. Now, it's interesting, he's already given us how many chapters of theology? We're in chapter 12, so how many have we had already? Good. Those of you that are good with math, it's 11 chapters. He's given us all this stuff. I mean, think about all the other Pauline epistles. There's only like uh, two of them that are bigger. So 11 chapters is a lot of information. And now he's in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he kind of is, is uh, moving our attention to not just what you think, not what you just believe, but also what you experience and then also what you do. You know, the, the, the connect is it's not just knowing, but it's also feeling, and then it's also applying. So we're going to be doing a lot of applying, and that's what he does in chapter 12 here. And it's interesting as we, by way of introduction, the, the there is a question that arises that you should be thinking about is why does he have to keep talking about love? Hasn't everybody arrived there already? I mean, who is he writing to in, in Rome? Is he writing to the bad people? Well, that's a trick question right who is good as the rich young ruler came to jesus and said you're good and jesus said to him who is good who is really perfect only jesus is yes he's writing to sinners that are in rome without a doubt but you wouldn't think that these people are deficient i mean what makes a christian a christian anyway Well, if I go back to uh, the book of Acts, where they were first called Christians, do you know why in Antioch they were called Christians? Was it because they were so handsome or so pretty? Do you know why people started labeling them as as Christians or Christ followers? Because uh, they're basically, a Christian has the word Christ in front of it. So it was a slang or a slur. It was saying, oh, you're one of those Christ people, those Christians, so, what made somebody call the Christians in Antioch Christians? If you go back to the text, you'll find it in Acts. It was because of their love. So, think about that for a moment. Christians are known for their love. You know, you know the song, We Are Known as Christians by Our Love, by Our Love. Yes, you'll know we are Christians by Our Love. Then why does Paul have to write about love to the Christians in Rome? Now, I believe they are Christians because if you go back to chapter 1, you look at it here. He says, Paul, a servant called to be an apostle set apart by the gospel. And he goes on to say uh, about Jesus Christ. And he says, uh, verse 7, to all that are in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be saints, grace to you and peace. So he's writing to Christians and he's having to write to them about Christian love you get the point? Even though they are God-fearing people, even though that they are known as Christians, they're even slurred as being Christ followers, they're supposed to be emanating love. And yet often, just like us, we find ourselves not understanding what love is. It is into that context that you realize that the apostle writes to these believers, these Christians, and he says, hey, when you love people, make sure it is... Genuine. Sincere. Make sure it's real. Wow. When, when I think about that... Even the people in Rome needed to be encouraged about what love is. So if you will, uh, if you have your fourth point, there's some on the back table or in the hallway when you come in, or if you take it home with you, the fourth point is provided so you can uh, take notes and you can also talk about some things. There's six or seven questions at the end that I'd love for you to discuss with your family or your loved one on your way home or when you're eating. Some of the applications, did you get it? Do you understand it? And in this particular case, do you really have it? you have genuine Christian love it's quite interesting I, I call it GCL genuine Christian love because it seems to be missing in Rome and I'm wondering whether it's missing in Delaware if it was here where would it come from well let's see my neighbor's pretty nice No, the obvious thing I'm trying to tell you is that if Christian love is going to be evident in Delaware, it's going to be evident in God's people. And when Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, he was encouraging them to have it emanate from them. Let your love be genuine. Now, with that in mind... I want to dive deep into this text. We won't have a ton of time to deal with it, but we're going to look at uh, 3Ds is what I call it. Um, We're going to define the nature of this this genuine Christian love. I want you to understand it a little bit more. (coughs) How do you even know if you have it if you don't know what it is? You know, there is no PRC test or something to see if you caught the virus of love. You know, my mom used to say that when you get bit by the love bug, uh, that usually leads to marriage and, and to babies in the baby carriage. Um, but when, when you're talking about the Christian love, how do you get it? So first, we're going to define the nature of, Christian, uh, of this Christian love. Secondly, I want to be able to discern the necessities for genuine Christian love to operate. In other words, when you find we're in chapter 12, there's some things that he already laid out for us. If you want to say it's the foundation that love builds upon. So we're going to look at four of those. And then I want to finish up with looking at uh, the the encouragement here to delight in the nobilities worthy of genuine Christian love. And this is good news. It's not supposed to beat you up and say, my goodness, I don't have any of that love stuff left. I spilt it all out. No, it should be in you like a river of living water. It should just bubble up and flow out of you. You know, whenever you shake up a soda can and you open it up, what do you expect to happen? A mess. All that sugar comes out with all the, all the bubbly stuff. Um, but if you wait a couple minutes, guess what happens? No more comes out. And it just goes flat. That seems to be sometimes the way Christian love is. Oh, you might get excited. You might come to church and you might leave maybe for five minutes. You might have that effervescence. And then you go flat you never tell anybody about anything and nobody ever accuses you of being a Christ follower because you just blend into the world. Now, the reason why this text is given to us is because the people in Rome needed it, and I believe the people of God still need it today, so here it comes. The first that we're going to look at is defining the nature of this genuine Christian love. If, if you look at the actual text, it's going to be uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. What you're going to find there is there's three, three things I want to draw your attention to. The first one has to do with this idea of genuine I've already touched on the fact that love is real, but how do you know if love is truly love? And some people have trouble translating this one word what in genuine. If you go to some of the other translations, you'll find that love, let your love be sincere. Now, why would Christians need to be scolded or, or educated or admonished or even educated in the area of having genuine love? Is there any other kind of love? Now, I could go to the Greek and show you that there's uh, several kinds like phileo love. There is also the agape love, which is the selfless love instead of the friendly love. There is the erotic love, eros, which has to do with the sexual intimacy love. Uh, there's, there's several different terminologies that you can find. But Paul right here is talking about Christian love. It is the, what, what, what the love of God flowing through you. So when you look here, he's defining the nature of it, and he says the Christian love, the love of God that flows through you, it should not be phony. If you go to the actual Greek text here, it's it's been translated two, two times well. One is that it is sincere, and that comes from an understanding that it's not waxed. You say, what? Well... From my understanding of this sincere or sans seer, uh, it it is the root that says that in the old days, when they had a uh, a piece of pottery or something that was old that was supposed to be valuable, sometimes in order to keep it together, uh, the owner of it would go in and put some wax in some of the weak places. And when they would reinforce it with the wax, it would look and appear that everything was good about it. But guess what would happen if you took a piece of pottery home that you thought was very valuable and you get it home and it's only been glued together with wax? What will happen on the next hot day? There is a sense in which this is saying, let your love be without wax. And if you, if you understand what I'm trying to say, he's saying, hey, Christians, don't, don't have a love that uh, has got some some, uh, shall we say, some paper over top of the bad parts. He's asking you to have 100% purity in your love. Not just a lot of the love mixed in with a lot of broken pieces and stuff. He's saying be sincere. Be without any kind of phony stuff to try to match it up or to gloss it over. That's one of the key ways of being able to understand this text, that your love needs to be 100% genuine. It's pure, better than ivory soap which is like 99.2% or something, you know, let your love be pure. Let it totally be the love of God flowing through you. Now, that's one way of understanding. Another is to look at the actual Greek text, which you may not understand it. I don't even want to pronounce it for you, but the root of it is called a uh, hypocrite. He says, don't let your love be like a hypocrite. Okay, and, and that's why some have translated being genuine, which is how the ESV does it. Um, The English Standard Version wants you to be able to compare the the genuine versus the phony or the genuine versus the counterfeit, okay? And so when you get into this particular thing, this comes from the terminology of being in a play or being in drama or if you want to watch a sitcom or something on TV, a a show, a movie, okay? When you you go and you you watch a movie, I just went up to Sight and Sound a couple weeks ago, and uh, when you go there... We sit down and we watch life unfurl around us. Is that by random? Absolutely not. Do you know how much practice goes in to those people to be able to sing? I mean, I was just talking with the guy that does all the uh, computer screens and all the sounds and all the different lights and all the effects. You know, that guy knows everything. He's got seven different monitors on. It's pretty amazing. But everything is like... You have to have it all orchestrated. Why? Because there is a script, and the script tells you this, then this, then this, then this. And people know when they come in; they know when they're supposed to be quiet. They know how long their lines are. Everything is scripted, and everything is acted out. Now, in this particular language, uh, when he says, "I want it," I want your love to not be acting. Let's just let that sink in for a moment. He says, "I don't want you just to follow the script." You know, when, when I was looking at King David up there on the stage, that wasn't King David. That was somebody's kid. Actually, probably, you know, he probably has kids himself, you know, when you get David to be in his older age. But that was just a guy playing the part of David. He was acting. Now, did he do a good job of acting? Absolutely. I mean, when he had this song over here and that song, and when he got caught with sin with Bathsheba and all that, my goodness, I started feeling sorry for him. It was great acting. But the Bible says here is that your Christian love, your genuine Christian love, should not be acting. It should be you. You shouldn't be playing a part. You shouldn't be a person with a mask on. I know that it's a hard one to use today, uh, especially since masks have been abused with the COVID, all that kind of stuff. But what he says here is in the old days, when you used to go to the drama, they used to put a mask over their face to be able to show you what character they were. And so he says, once you put a mask on, then you knew the part that that person was playing. You know, if they're playing in Julius Caesar, if they're playing in Othello or if they're doing any kind of drama, you kind of know which character it is because they don't have... Back in those days, they didn't have these screens that could have words pop up and all that kind of stuff too. Uh, And so they had masks to help you to know what they were acting out. Here he says, let your love be without any mask. Let your love be without any, any acting. Let your love be genuinely you. Now, this is the nature of genuine love. Have you ever thought about it like that? You don't have to add something to it like the wax or you don't have to add or, or, or to put a mask on and just fake it so that everybody likes you. You know, you look really good being in church on a Sunday morning. Way to go. You must have lots of Christian love. Now, there's one more thing that you should see in this nature of it, and that is the next verse, which is kind of or the next phrase that comes here in chapter 9. He says, abhor... What is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, this almost sounds like an oxymoron. I'm trying to impress you with a big vocabulary word, an oxymoron. That means, how can you have genuine love and hate things? There's a lot of folks that are confused, even in in the 21st century. Because we're supposed to be so loving, so loving. We ought to just ooze with love. You know, when you cut somebody, instead of blood coming out, love just ought to ooze out. And, and, and you, you know the phrases because you've said them. You know, we got to love everybody. we got to love the sinner, but not the sin. Well, there is some truth to that. But when the, when the word love is used here, let your love be genuine without any kind of hypocrisy, he says, you ought to also be hating that which is evil, abhorring it. It is, it is very interesting when you try to di- diagnose how this oxymoron can help. And then he has the phrase that follows after it. And if, if you see it there, I just want to make sure you, you connect the dots. He says, if you're abhorring what is evil, then the thought is completed by holding fast to what is good. You abhor what is evil, you reject it, and you cling to the things that are good. And I'll pick up that in a moment. I just wanted to focus on this one a- aspect of the nature of, the will, uh, of, of genuine love. The nature of genuine love is very discerning. Genuine love is not blind. Genuine love does not go out and just say, oh, I love this person, oh, I love that, oh, I love good weather, oh, I love bad weather, oh, I love uh, when, when, when my team wins, oh, I love it when they lose. You're just phony. You don't love everything like that. And when he says, you got to have a discerning nature to you so that you can not fall into the trap of loving things that are bad. Okay, help me out now. What word was just in there? What are we supposed to do to things that are evil? Abhor them. Abhor them. Is there anything that you abhor in this life? Maybe, you know, the scratching on the chalkboard. Everybody just screeches. Ah! When I was a school teacher, the kids always, same response. You know, in churches too, if you go past noon. Ah! You're going to die of starvation. <laughs> what do you really abhor? Do you abhor anything? Well, pastor, I really haven't thought about that. Because I'm really practicing on trying to find some things that I do love. You see, we're almost all wired to be Negative. We see so much sin around us. We don't even have to look far. You look in the mirror in the morning, you can see a sinner. It's very, very interesting that most of us don't really understand what it means to abhor that which is evil. But the focus is not supposed to be on hating. The focus is being able to discern what's good and what's evil. Now, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says it very well. After Paul has just told the people in Philippi, don't worry, don't be anxious. When you go through troubles and everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known. That's 4, chapter 4, verse 6. Then he goes on to say that God will give you a peace. And then he says, finally, brothers, whatsoever is lovely, pure, honest, and of good report, focus on those things. You see, that's a good little summary in Philippians 4, 8, where you can say... Hmm, that's really where I ought to make my my vision go in those things. You don't have to look to the left or to the right. You can always find evil things. You can find evil motives, and you can actually find some devilish activities. I've I've received an email from someone this week that was telling me about some of the agenda in, in Delaware that's being proposed some of the ideas that are going to be advanced and probably passed because there's strong majorities there, none of them are promoting Christianity. In the email I got, it, or the text message I got, it said that they have an evil agenda. And I'm just thinking, hmm, that's really interesting. Somebody sharp enough to be able to say, hey, what is evil? It's actually that which is against God. That which is deceptive. Or or let me take you back, if you will, with me to chapter 12, uh, verse uh, verse uh, 5, where he says, But be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. See, see what I told you about genuine Christian love can discern? So if you can discern, and look at what you're supposed to discern here uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 5. He says, Do not be... Con- uh, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Wow. It's beautiful when you can see that you're supposed to be able to discern that if it's not God's perfect will, then you should not be loving it. You should not be casting your lot with that. That's why when you go back in the Old Testament, you can see again and again, but Lot is a great illustration. When Lot was hanging out with Abraham, and then finally he left Abraham's company, and, he, and uh, where did he go? He went to the greener grass. And the Bible says that, uh, that he saw Sodom from a distance, and then he ended up living in Sodom. And so it seemed like that became more and more normal and natural to him. And you know what? It was an evil place. It was so bad That God brought fire and brimstone on it. Their abuse of sexual liberty was so blatant that God says, I'm going to end it. And Abraham is there in this interesting position. God, if there's 50 Christians there, if there's 50, would you not? And they got all the way down to 10. Is there 10? Would you you spare the city? It wasn't even 10. The people's thoughts and intents were evil continually. They were anti-God. It was really sad when Lot's wife, when she was leaving, her heart was still in Sodom. And how do we know that? Because she looked back and was missing it. And of course, we all know the rest of the story. That was her last thought before being turned into a pillar of salt. Now, I told you this was supposed to be an encouraging sermon. So the first thing was to say the nature of genuine love is that it's unwaxed, it's unmixed, and it's fully discerning. Let me take you secondly to discern the necessities for genuine Christian love. There are four things that you see in the text, and I want to just highlight them. I've already gone over them before, so you'll probably pick up. Back, if you go back one verse, this is uh, chapter 12, verse 8. He says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal. uh, He ends up, I'm going all the way back to verse, okay, verse 3 is the key place. So um, he has just mentioned uh, from verses four to verse uh, eight has all been about the church and the body of Christ with its diversity. But the verse preceding that sets the stage for us as a necessity. Uh, If you look at verse three, for by the grace given to me as an apostle, I say to everyone there in Rome, all of you that claim the name of Christ, all of you labeled as Christians, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Hmm, So the first thing you need to do is an examination of yourself. If you're going to have genuine Christian love, he says, first look in the mirror. First examine your own heart. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But he says, you ought to have sober judgment. You ought to be able to deal with reality with your own self. Stop acting like you're you're better than everybody else. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He says, don't you realize you're a part of the body of Christ, but you're important, but you're not more important than the body. You you may be a hand, but you're not the head. Jesus is the head. You're just a part of the body, and when Christ the head tells you to do something, what are you supposed to do? Do it. Now, you might have a position as a lung, or you might be a joint in the elbow. Uh, You know, whatever part you play, he says, look in the mirror and have sober judgment and recognize, hey, God put me on this earth for such a time as this. Quoting from Esther chapter 4. Now, once you do that self-examination, then I want you to back up to verse 2. Okay, and this is where you do an inquiry of God's agenda. I already mentioned it already. He says, since we're, uh, we're supposed to be transformed, because now we are testing what God's will is. And there's three adjectives that we're supposed to discern. What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Okay, so basically, when you start discerning these things, you make an inquiry to say, well, what, what is it that God wants? What is going on? What has God put me here for this, such a purpose as this? And it's discerning what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So you have first backing, you know, backing up genuine Christian love does a self-examination. If you back up a little further, it does an inquiry into what God's agenda is. And if you back up a little further, you're going to find an awareness that popularity is not the right way to go. Pastor, where are you getting this? Well, when, when you're looking around and seeing what everybody else is doing, it's probably not good to do what they're doing. If you go back to verse chapter 2, he starts off by saying, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, do not be like the people in this world. Do not be conformed. Don't just mimic them. Don't just, let's see, oh, this is what Twitter says we need to do. You know, this is what Facebook says is popular. I'm going to wear those clothes or I'm going to say these things or I'm not going to say those things because I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to be accused of not being woke, or I don't want to have to uh, not keep my job. You see, when, when you have this awareness that the popular way is not the right way, this is a prerequisite to genuine love. Genuine love does not conform to the world. Genuine love doesn't do it just because some rock star does it, or because somebody that's kind of cute is on, a, on the movie poster that says, this is the way you ought to vote, Don't be like the world. You have an awareness that the popular way is not necessarily the right way. In fact, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be on it. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and few are on that. We are on the few. We're numbered with the few on the narrow way that leads to life. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You'll never get to heaven except going on my way. Now, I told you there was four things, and this last one is the most amazing one, but this makes perfect sense. If you look at chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Paul is writing to these Christians in Rome, and he says, I beg of you, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, because of the mercy of God. In other words, God hasn't given you what you deserve. He's been merciful. He's given you time. He's given you the scriptures. He's given you preachers. He's given you stuff that you don't deserve, and he hasn't given you what you deserve. That would be justice. The soul that sins would surely die. It would be set apart from God's grace. No, no, mercy says, I'm not giving you what you deserve yet. And grace is when he gives us Jesus. And that's what you'll see in this text. By the mercies of God, I'm begging of you, brothers, that you would do something that is very unique. That you would put all your money in the offering box. Is that what it says? I'm not going to stop you if you do. It says... I, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now the illustration there would be is that we would have an offering box that you could jump into, because you're supposed to give your time, the time of your earthly life to God. How much of it? A tenth? Ooh, that was a trick question. If you start saying, "Well, I'll give God 50 percent of my time," what have you just said? You've missed the point that you're supposed to do here as a prerequisite to genuine Christian love and that is the recognition of Jesus Christ as your master. He is your maker. He is your savior. He is your all in all. He is the head of the body. Let me read it again. Beg of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, the children of God, that you would present your bodies, your your physical bodies and the time that you have on this life uh, to be a sacrifice to God and have your, your life be holy and acceptable. And this is simply reasonable. I mean, look at what he's done for you. It's not like you really have to, but my goodness, why wouldn't you? He has, So the four things that, that, pre, that come before genuine Christian love is that you have, starting with the chapter 12, verse 1, you recognize who's master and you yield to him. Secondly, you're aware that the master's will is not necessarily the popular way. Whatever the world does, you need to, to, to dismiss that to make sure you do it whatever he says is the right way. Then once you have that awareness that the popular way is not the right way, then he says you need to, to search out God's way. What is God doing in this world? What is he doing in 2022? And then when you go a little further, make sure that you realize that you're, you may be one of somebody on God's team, but you are not the team. You may be one of the pitchers. I like baseball. You, know, you may be out there throwing pitches, but you know, there's other players on the field. And there's nine innings. And when you realize that you are not God, you might be able to do this well, or catch the ball, or throw this, but you will never be able to win and have victory in Jesus if you're doing it all on your own. So, those, those, the, discerning these necessities, Paul laid it out there that if you're going to have genuine Christian love, where you are able to not be waxed and not be, uh, not be acting, and you're and you're fully discerning, it's because all those other things are in place. Now, let me get you the happy place. Delight in the nobilities worthy of of genuine Christian love. Delight in these things. In chapter 12, verse 9, the second part, he says, cling to that which is good. I'm quoting the old King James. uh, in, in In the ESV, it says to hold fast to what is good. Now, how do you know what's good? Is it good because it works? That's called pragmatism. Is it good because it's popular? That's called conformity. What makes something good? I've often argued, and if you've been in the church before, this pastor likes to talk about the helicopter view of faith. That when God gives you the eyes of faith, he takes you up to an elevation that's higher than where you are. And he lets you see things that otherwise you wouldn't see. From the higher elevation of faith, you end up seeing God. You see his fingerprints on all kinds of things. You see how he works everything together for good. And the next thing you recognize is you see the ugliness of sin and the beauty of holiness. I sometimes separate those, but you really, they're the same thing. If you look at something, you will either see its beauty or its ugliness. You will either see that it is part of God's, or you will see that it's not. And that's one of the beautiful things that the eyes of faith help you to see. But in this particular text, he's arguing. He says, let your love be genuine. And he says, hang on, cleave to the things that are good. Wow. Cling to what is good. In Romans eight twenty eight, you know the verse. It says, "For God, uh, uh, for God works all things together for the good, for the good." So, who determines what good is? Take an O out of it, and you'll see. God is the one that tells us what's good and what's not good. He distinguishes between what what is good and what is evil. Uh, when I go back to um, there's a couple of texts that I was going to highlight. Uh, uh, Psalm 97:10. Uh, this is back from David in the Old Testament. He says, "O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil, for God preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked." So even back in the Old Testament, the same admonition was coming to people who were trusting in God. If you go to Psalm 101.3, he says, "I I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the works of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Is that really true? Do you hate the work of those who are falling away? In Amos chapter 5, verse 15, this is one of the prophets. He is speaking to people who are going to come under some judgment. He tells them straight up, Hey, you Christians, hate evil and love what is good and establish justice in the gate, which is what goodness ends up leading to, to good order and people that are being rewarded for doing what's right and they're being punished for doing what's wrong, that it may be the Lord the God of hosts, that he'll be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 5, which is one of the texts that really drives this point home, it echoes what he says in Romans 9. He says, but test everything. In other words, whatever it is you're going to be doing, you want to find out what's good? He says, test everything. And he says, get rid of everything else that's not good. It's kind of like uh, if, if any of us would be old enough to remember, and I don't think anybody here is, when you had the, the gold rush, when people would leave all kinds of stuff over here on the east side and would go to the west coast, and they would, uh, they would not even have plumbing or they wouldn't have any of the big buildings. They were going looking for gold. And I remember, as I've seen some of those places, you know, you would just put your your screen in the water, and you dig up all this dirt, and then you shake it all out, or the water kind of pours over it. And what's left is you're looking for some gold nuggets. Every time I did it, I just got rocks. (laughs) Didn't have anything to keep. But when he says, examine it all, when you're living your daily life, when you're going through the 24-7, whatever happens this week, even before we come, come back next week, everything should be tested. Test it all and see what is good. And when you see what is good, he says, hold on to it, cling to it, embrace it, treasure it. And in verse 22, if you have it up there, you'll see, he says, everything else It's just a type of evil. It's trying to pull you away from what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's really quite interesting. How do we know how all of this stuff works together? We discern the necessities of all these prerequisites, trying to be able to... to, to figure out all the stuff that goes into it so that we can have this genuine love. I have a few questions that I'm going to ask you. And that is uh, an application. You have it on your fourth point if you, if you uh, are with me. But um, people struggle oftentimes with, with Christian love. And the reason I think we, we, we fall into the two traps... We tend to protect ourselves from loving things because we're not very good at discerning what's good and what's not good. You know what I mean. You come to church, and some of you may be first-time visitors today. You're not sure who is safe to talk to. You know, somebody may be overly aggressive, or you might come in here and you might be testing them out to say, hmm, is this a friendly church? They put it up on the word cloud, but they're not very friendly. Nobody talked to me after church. Nobody invited me to lunch. Can you believe it? They took me to lunch, but they didn't pay for me. I mean, you could have all the kind of arguments that go on there. Um, you could be unrealistic. But what does genuine love really look like? And why do we have this fear? Sometimes we, we, we guard ourselves and we just hide a little bit back. You know, why does nobody want to sit on the front row? You know, it, 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 we're all wired the same way. There's some kind of a fear in us. We don't want to be seen or something to that effect. Now, the other side of it is, some of us have just tried to let all go, and we try to love everybody. And when we've loved everybody, guess what we've gotten in return? <laughs> Did any of you get what you expected? When you just love everybody, and you love this person and this person, I mean, just look on the people on the road that you're sitting on. If you really love them, how would you demonstrate that love for them? Did they reciprocate? Did they even look at you? Did they even say hi when you said hello to them? I mean, I, I'm forever, when we're walking through Lewis, I say hello to everybody. Sometimes they don't even acknowledge I'm in person. <laughs> Maybe they're afraid I'll invite them to church or something. I, but I don't think I have go to church on you my forehead. But the thing is, some people are so guarded that they don't love at all, and there's others who are just so risk, uh, carefree, that they try to love everybody and they end up getting scar tissue. Why do you think we all struggle with family reunions? We're supposed to love those people. And yet the way we love them now is we have to make a deal that we won't talk about anything that's of significance. Can't talk about Jesus. Can't talk about politics. Can't talk about the COVID shot. You You can't even talk about your own finances. You can't talk about anything except maybe the sports. And who cares about them? What I'm trying to get at is that we struggle a lot with genuine love. So what does genuine love look like? When somebody beats you up, how do you love them? Do you beat them up too? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? So obviously that's what they wanted to happen to them, right? No. When folks come at you, the Bible does say that we have a grace about us, that we don't have to give people what they deserve. So it's not really about a tit-for-tat. It's not about equality of that. Genuine Christian love is not about you giving people what they deserve. It's about the love of God flowing through you. My mentor just was telling me about... Uh, he's over, he was over in Egypt for two weeks... ...and he was teaching at one of these places up the Nile. So I opened up my app and I looked and I said... ...oh man, I've never been there. And then I realized, man, I've been at the mouth of the Nile. I thought, pretty cool, I've been to Africa to Lake Victoria... You know, that Nile River, when it flows, it's going through a desert. And the oasis on both sides of it, where this water is flowing through, it seems to be able to give life where everywhere else seems to be death. But where does that water come from? And if you trace it back, and some have, they give a lot of credit to, to Lake Victoria over in Uganda. I've been there. And that's where they boast that that's the beginning of the Nile. My issue for bringing up the Nile River and its its source is genuine Christian love is the same. You see, the river of life that flows through you starts somewhere that's not you. If you go to 1 John 4 9, we love because what? He first loved us. When you experience the love of God, then the love of God flows through you. We're just a hose. So if somebody back in the old days in Canada... they used to call you a hoser... that you could take that as a compliment... for the love of God to flow through you. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 20... you realize that he says... I've been crucified with Christ... nevertheless I live, but the life I live... I live by the faith of the Son of God... who loved me and gave himself for me. When you realize this great love... that has been demonstrated to us... that while we were yet in sin... Christ died for us. You realize that the cross is empty... Because it could never hold him. But when we look at it, the cross doesn't scare us because we're never going to have to hang there. The wages of our sin was already paid. The wrath of God for my sin has already been paid. The wrath of God for your sin has already been paid. It's really interesting that when you realize that the love of God comes to us and it flows through us, that's the source. The source is God himself. For God so loved the world He started it all. If you're going to have genuine Christian love, let your love be real. Let it be you. Don't just act it out. Abhor the things that are bad and cling to the things that are good. If I took you to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to highlight this in the next two sermons that I'll deal with this, and you can see it on the bulletin card we're going to be picking up on love because this genuine Christian love, according to Romans nine, it deals not only with those inside the church but those outside the church, and we'll make application. But just hear these beautiful words, First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen, verses four through eight, and then I'll close with prayer. Love, God's love, is patient. It is kind. God's love does not envy. It does not boast because of all the humility that is already done thinking soberly. God's love is never arrogant. It doesn't condescend to people. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. God's love is not rude. It does not have to make you feel like you've been bullied. It does not insist on its own way. God's love flowing through us is not irritable. Let me repeat that one. (laughs) When God's love is flowing through us, it's not irritable and it doesn't resent. It doesn't get caught up with keeping a record of all the wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings. Oh, yes, it recognizes wrongdoings. It doesn't pretend that everybody's just nice, nice, nice. It sees when people are jerks and fools and dumb. It hears the words that should never have been said but it does not rejoice when it sees those bad things. Love rather rejoices when you get to the truth, when you get to the real essence of what matters. Jesus said in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can see that it rejoices in Jesus. It rejoices in the perfect and acceptable and holy will of God. In verse 7, he goes on to say about this genuine Christian love, it bears all things. In other words, it doesn't give up just because things get tough. If you come to the Sunday school class and we're talking about suffering, I'm telling you, R.C. Sproul told us how tough it was for his daughter to lose a nine-month baby and have to deliver it dead. It's not even fun to reference. But God's love saw her through that. It endured through that. It bears all things. It will believe all things. In other words, it doesn't assume the worst. Just because somebody screwed up in the past, you don't have to assume that they're going to screw up again. They probably will. But there is a belief that God in them might be different. It hopes all things, and it endures. You see, the reason why it endures is because God's love is like that fountain that that never runs dry. My son and daughter, for his 20, my son on his 25th birthday, went to Old Faithful this week, and uh, they they walked around. They saw that big hill, that giant rock with the little hole in it, and uh, I think I'm confessing too much, but my daughter in all said it wasn't that impressive. And then they got on the Google and said, "Oh, the reason why it's Old Faithful is because it's faithful." And so they came back, and they, according to the clock, the the, the schedule that is so timely, so timely, they came back. And then they saw this water just gush up higher than the trees. Then they were amazed. They said it stunk too. But the, they said, the idea that the love of God is not a geyser that just comes up and comes up every two hours. The love of God never runs dry. The source of that love flows is always giving more life-giving truth. And that's why he says love doesn't end. Brothers and sisters, do you have genuine Christian love? Do I need to tell you to let the love that comes out of you be genuine? Do I need to do like the apostle and says, hate the stuff that is bad and hang on for dear life to the things that are good? I believe we all need to hear that. And the reason that he gives us this counsel is because of the mercies of God that were demonstrated on Calvary's cross. The love of God was poured out for us. Have you received it? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that this message ends in hope. I thank you that we do not have to be guilted and twisted around. We don't have to be confused. And Lord, sometimes our applications of this love sometimes are a little hard because the people around us are not all the same. Some people are a little nicer than others. Some people are a little more distant than others. Some people are a little bit more strange than others. Lord, sometimes we don't have a lot in common with everybody. But Lord, when we realize that the love of God flowing through us is that we are your hands. We are your feet. We are your mouthpiece. Lord, we represent Christ as we go forth into this world. Oh Lord, I pray that your love would flow through us. In Jesus' name.